Money can't buy happiness. If only I had a dollar for every time I heard that. I recently read an article that actually tried to argue the opposite. It cited a recent study that showed that there was some kind of relationship between having more money and being more happy. Of course, the study and the article admit that money isn't everything. It's only one contributing factor to a person's overall happiness. When this study was put out and shared on Twitter, one Twitter user said, anyone who says money doesn't buy happiness just doesn't know where to go for shopping. Another joked, money won't make you happy, but it's nicer to cry in a Ferrari. What about joy? Can we find joy in money or in material wealth? Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever found an old $20 bill in an old coat? Then you know that at least for a moment, money can bring a little bit of joy. Maybe that hasn't happened to you. Maybe, though, you've gotten a raise or a bonus at some point. Those can be joyful and exciting moments. But no, even according to this study, on its own, Material wealth doesn't guarantee happiness or joy. This morning we'll talk about a kind of wealth, though, that always results in joy when it is truly received. It's our spiritual wealth. And no, we don't earn it, but we can receive it. And when we do, we can't help but be joyful. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, we learn that we are spiritually bankrupt When we trust our flesh, but when we gain Christ through faith, we can rejoice because we are spiritually wealthy. But before we dive into the text this morning, I want to make that sentence that I just said incredibly clear. We are spiritually bankrupt when we trust our own flesh. But when we gain Christ through faith, we can rejoice because we are spiritually wealthy. Maybe you're in this room this morning and you have never just taken for a moment to turn from a life of sin, repent of that sin, and trust in Jesus Christ and have faith in him and believe on him. If that's you, then this morning I hope you see that at this moment you are in a state of spiritual bankruptcy. Everything about you, everything you try to do, everything that you are, will not put anything to your line of credit. But instead it will be counted as debt. Why? Because we are all sinners. We have all Sinned. We've all disobeyed God and been rebellious against God. There's an author, Dane Ortland, in his book, uh, Gentle and Lowly, and we actually have some copies of it in the back table. It's an excellent book I'd encourage you all to read. In that book, he puts it like this. If sin were the color blue, we do not occasionally say or do something blue. All that we say, do, and think has some taint of blue. So that all of us, everything we are and everything we do, is touched by the stain 
of sin. And sin within us creates a desire to justify ourselves, to make ourselves right. Whether it's to make ourselves right with God or with the culture or with our own consciences. And, and maybe, maybe you don't see this, but even in our culture today, they may not use the religious language, but there is an effort on everybody's part to make themselves okay. There's constantly, especially if you're on social media, you see it constantly. People trying to play the victim and explain that they're actually in the right. People trying to tell themselves that I'm good just like I am. People trying to do and say all the right words and phrases and use all the right language in order to be seen as in the right, in order to be okay. But apart from Christ, we cannot fix ourselves. Apart from Christ, we can only rely on our own flesh, and that gets us nowhere. And by our flesh, I simply mean ourselves and our actions. But God does not want us to rely on our person and our works. He wants us to rely only on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So if you hear nothing else this morning, I hope you hear that. Likewise, maybe you have at some point in your life repented of your sin and believed in Jesus. And you've even joined a church and attended a church. Maybe it's been this one for many, many years and, and for a long, long time. But perhaps, even without knowing it, you have trusted in your own flesh instead of in Christ alone. Maybe you've trusted both in Christ and your flesh, hoping to hedge your bets a little bit. Maybe without knowing it, you have begun to trust your flesh more than your faith in Christ, more than trusting Him. And it sneaks in a lot easier than you might think. One day you say, I trust Christ alone. The next day you say, I trust Christ alone. And I know that because I read my Bible every day, which makes God happy. I was baptized, which God really liked. I pray all the time, which God is pretty pleased with. And all of a sudden, we're not just trusting Christ. We're trusting ourselves and what we can do for him and what pleases him in our minds. And all of a sudden we say, I know I'm okay because I've done what God wants for me. And then we have gotten severely on the wrong foot. Let me ask you a hypothetical question, just to set the stage as we read this text and, and study this text this morning. Now, this is a purely hypothetical question. I don't even necessarily believe this will happen at all, but go with this hypothetical for a moment. Let's say that through some terrible event, you leave this room or in this room and die today, and you stand before God and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? Again, purely hypothetical. I don't, know, I don't even think this will happen. But let's say he says, why should I let you into my heaven? And you start to think in your mind, and you're like, well, now I have to explain why I should get in, why I should be in the presence of the Lord, why I shouldn't be sent to judgment. And so you might say something like, well, I've really tried to be a good person in my life. i tried to do more good than bad. Maybe you'll say, well, Lord, I, I attended church every Sunday, except when I was on vacation. But, you know, you understand that. I attended church every Sunday, except when I went into the woods to fish or to hunt. But, you know, I could see your creation, and that was good. You might say, Lord, I've been attending church every Sunday my entire life in one church. That's how faithful I was to your people. 
Or you might say, Lord, I've been so faithful to your people, I've attended Sunday or church every Sunday in 50 churches over the course of my life. Every year I change churches and it's been great. Maybe you'll say, well, I read my Bible every day. Maybe you'll say, I pray every day. Maybe you'll say, I pray every day when I wake up, when I go to bed, and before meals. And you know what? Some days, Lord, I even prayed when it wasn't before a meal and when I didn't just wake up or go to bed. That's how good I was. We might say, well, I fed a lot of people who were hungry. Or I visited a lot of people when they were sick or in prison. Or, and so on and so on and so on. We could go on and on. Of the reasons God should let us into his heaven. But if you haven't gotten the picture yet, all of those are wrong answers. There is only one answer for which we can enter the presence of God. Your son, Jesus Christ, died for my sin on the cross. There is only one reason we can be right, not just with our culture or with our conscience, not just with our family or our friends, but with God. There is only one way, and that is Jesus Christ. And as soon as we start to credit ourselves for what we have done, we have missed the point entirely. We have started to build a kingdom not of God. We have started to build a kingdom for ourselves by our works and by our merits. Such that we believe we deserve to be in the presence of God. We deserve to be in heaven. He's put a room there for us, hasn't he? Yet, if we do not have faith in Christ alone... We have no place there. Paul begins in verse 1 saying, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. He's addressing this to his brothers. Implied there is the sisters as well. Don't feel left out. But his brothers and sisters, not mere family, not his brothers from from sharing the same parents, not his brother from another mother, nothing like that. He's addressing it to his brothers because they are his brothers in Christ. He's addressing it not just to random people, but to a church, a people who were set apart by God. He's addressing it to God's people. And he tells them to rejoice in the Lord. Now, if you go on to read or if you read what came before, this seems perhaps a little random. But it seems that what Paul wants us to do as he writes verses 1 through 11 and beyond that even is to approach everything with a posture of joy, of rejoicing in what he is saying. And this isn't anything new to them. They're God's people and this isn't anything new. In verse 1 he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. He's apparently repeating something that he expects they already know. Maybe something he himself told them in the past. Really, he's, he's really just repeating some very basic ideas about the Christian faith, about Christ, and about the good news of God. He's repeating some very basic things. But he doesn't mind repeating it. And it's safe for them. It's a safeguard for them. Because he's worried about some false teaching that might occur. That he's seen in other churches like theirs. Now, I hope... I hope that you've, you've gone to church, if, you, if you've been someone who's gone to church for, for weeks, or years, or decades, or centuries. No, no one in here. Okay. I hope that you wouldn't be upset 
about showing up to church and hearing some of the same things again. I hope you wouldn't be so in search for novelty that you're unwilling to hear the basic, simple gospel message again and again, because it's exactly what our hearts and minds need. Now, Paul contrasts uh, these possible opponents with the people he is writing to. Look in verse 2. He says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's telling them, look out. They're on their way, perhaps. It doesn't seem that he thinks that there are actually these false teachers there at that present moment. But perhaps they've come before, and he assumes perhaps they'll come again. And he's seen this in other churches, that these kinds of false teachers come in. Now we can gather from these descriptions and from what he goes on to say, these were false teachers, probably Jewish Christians. That means they were ethnically Jewish, but had begun to follow Christ, who were preaching a gospel that in addition to faith in Christ included works of the flesh, specifically the command of male circumcision. Look at how he describes them. Look out for the dogs. Now, in our culture, if someone called you a dog, we'd know kind of what they're trying to get at, wouldn't we? But here, Paul isn't inherently meaning this as an insult. Did you know even Jesus called people dogs at one point? But who was he referring to? He was referring to the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles. See, the Jewish people were given the law of God to follow, to observe. And in that law, there were some things that were deemed clean ceremonially and other things deemed as unclean. And according to this law, for instance, pork, pigs, were unclean animals. That's why, if you know an observant Jew today, they won't eat pork. They won't eat bacon. What a life. But they also wouldn't eat dogs, which I know none of you were thinking about doing, because dogs were likewise unclean animals. And so it was common in the day of Paul and even in the day of Jesus that the Jews, possibly with some negative connotations, would call the Gentiles who they deemed unclean, as they deemed far from God, as dogs. But now Paul is calling not Gentile Christians dogs, but these Jewish Christians, these ones who want to put the law of God on other people's shoulders. He's calling them dogs, implying that they are the ones who are actually far from God now. Look out for the evildoers. In, in the search for righteousness, these false teachers were preaching good works. They were literally do-gooders, or good-doers, however you want to put it. But here, but here Paul calls them evil-doers. They're not the people who preach good works, they're the people who preach bad works. For by preaching good works as a means to attaining righteousness, they are actually preaching evil and bad works. And finally, he calls them those who mutilate the flesh. Literally, it just says the mutilation, which is actually a play on words with circumcision. So they're commanding male circumcision of Gentiles, which he calls mutilation. So Paul isn't a big fan of the false teachers, as you can tell. 
He thinks they are actually, though they say they are nearer to God, they are actually farther from Him. Though they preach good works, they actually do evil. And though they preach circumcision, they actually practice mutilation. And then he contrasts them with the church in Philippi and himself in verse 3. For we are the circumcision. He says, they claim to be the circumcision, the true people of God. But we are. Not just the church in Philippi, who are Gentile Christians predominantly. But Paul, who was a Jewish Christian. We together are the circumcision. For Paul, an extraordinary thing has taken place through the person of Jesus. Through the person of Jesus, both Jew and Gentile can be brought into the same family of God. This ethnic barrier no longer exists. God's people are not defined by who practice and observe the law and who do not. They are defined simply by those who have faith in Christ and those who are not in Christ. So Paul writes what he is saying for God's people so that they would rejoice in the Lord. Now, Paul wants to make an argument now, as he's prone to do. If our flesh could earn us a spiritual profit, then Paul would have been abundantly rich. Look at verses 4 through 6. He says that the circumcision are those who worship by the Spirit of God, starting in verse 3 actually. Those who worship by the Spirit of God, those who serve under the Spirit. They're not do-gooders. They're those who by the Spirit can do good. They glory in Christ Jesus. Their confidence is not in the works of the flesh. It is in Christ alone. And they put no confidence in the flesh. They do not trust their flesh. They do not have faith in their flesh. And he says in verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also... Paul says that these false teachers are playing the wrong game. They have the wrong rules and they have the wrong goals. But then he wants to argue, but if we're going to play your game, let's see how it goes. Because I think I still win. Look at verse 4. He says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Just based on who he is, his upbringing, things he couldn't choose, Paul says, I have utter confidence in the flesh, in my heritage, in my people. I was circumcised like you want everyone else to be on the correct day, the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel. I was of the right nationality. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I wasn't one of those little lesser tribes. I was one of the big tribes, one of the better tribes. And I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Not only was I ethnically Jewish in Hebrew, but my family actually lived it out a little bit. In the home, we spoke Hebrew. We read the law of God. So just based on his upbringing and who he is by birth, Paul has an edge on them, he says. And then he says this, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
He's saying, according to how I interpreted the law and practiced the law, I was a Pharisee. I was a strict adherent of the law. He says, according to my zeal, my passion for it, I was going around persecuting the church. I stood there when Stephen was martyred. I was going, I was going to persecute the church when my life was changed by Christ. And as to righteousness under the law, as to righteousness you could earn from the law, from your flesh, I was blameless. Now, Paul's not saying he was sinless, but he's saying, even when I sinned, I dealt with it the way the law required. I did all the proper sacrifices. Don't think that I was a failure as a Jew and therefore became a Christian. I was the best. My resume looked better than anyone else's. If we were applying for being the best Jew, my resume would be on top. All the things I couldn't control, my upbringing, the way I was raised, the way I was born, look perfect. All the ways I lived, my adherence to the law, my, my passion for it, my righteousness under it was perfect. I would be the top candidate. I'll put my resume up against your resume any day. Now, Paul is not bragging here. And if you don't know where this passage is going, you would think, well, that makes no sense. This sounds like bragging. Listen, he is bragging and he is boasting in the flesh so that he can show them the utter failure of living according to the flesh. He's trying to make clear that if he had stayed doing what he was doing, he would have been golden. If adhering to the law and having a passion for the law and getting righteousness under the law was a thing worth doing, he would have been set up for life. If he could gain a spiritual profit from all of his works, then he would be abundantly rich. He didn't need to go somewhere else for it. But like Paul, we are spiritually bankrupt when we trust our own flesh. Look at verses 7 through 8. This is one of perhaps the most famous passages in Scripture. Paul writes, after listing out his resume, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul realizes that true spiritual wealth requires abandoning the, our flesh, abandoning our pride in ourselves, abandoning our efforts to earn righteousness. This is both great news, and if you're not ready to hear it, I think it's very bad news. It's great news, because if you're ready to hear it, what you are hearing is that your efforts cannot save you. And that should give you a lot of hope if you've been trusting in them to save you. 
If you have been saying that I can be good enough and find yourself failing again and again and again and again, then this is good news. Because if you will hear it, you will find that you don't have to keep trying and failing anymore. You can simply trust in Jesus. If you find that you want to be seen as a big shot with a big reputation and great righteousness, if you want to be well thought of in your community, at your workplace, in your church, in your home, and your works will not get you there, this can be good news. But if you are unwilling to hear because of your pride that you cannot earn your righteousness, you cannot earn being okay, you cannot earn your freedom from judgment, you cannot earn a right relationship with God. If you are unwilling to hear that, this is not good news. You will hear this as bad news because your pride wants you to earn it. And we all know people like this. Some of us are people like this. People say, oh, the best things in life are free. And some of us go, no, they're not. The best things in life you earn. You work for them. You put your your elbow into it. You fight for it. Those things that you earn yourself are the best things. Some of you truly think that. And in some circumstances, you might be right. There's more satisfaction sometimes in earning something than getting it for free. But if you believe that about everything, and then you hear that the only way to God is to stop thinking that for just a moment and accept something that is free, that is better than anything you could ever earn, then all of a sudden you're in a predicament, aren't you? Unless you're willing to humble yourself and realize that you're not everything you think you are. Paul says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In fact, Paul is using financial language here. Gain and loss, profit and loss, credit and debt. He's saying that if you look at my resume, if you look at my portfolio, my investments in this life, you might look at it and see skyrocketing increases, green all the way up. But he's saying that now that I know Christ, I would take every one of those investments and throw them on the side of debt. It's red all the way down. Because when I see Christ, everything that I once considered a credit to me, I now consider a debt to me. Such that it condemns me rather than brings me into the righteousness of God. Such that everything about me and every work I've ever done is worthless. Paul calls it rubbish. I remember one time, I I can't remember if it was a flight to the UK or from the UK, but I had a British uh, flight crew. And I remember them walking around. Now, if you've ever been on a plane, and many of you I know have, then they'll walk down the aisle sometimes and say, trash, 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 and take up trash. Because, you know, they take your trash and they put it in a trash can. That's what we do in America. But I remember not understanding what they were saying because the flight attendants were walking down. And what they were saying, which I didn't understand, was they kept saying, rubbish, 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 rubbish. Because they don't have a trash can in the UK, they have a rubbish bin. And so they were getting all the rubbish, getting it in the bin. Paul's not saying that everything he had was just rubbish, though. 
Now, you've heard this passage preached before, and if you haven't, let me enlighten you. Every preacher who ever preaches this passage is going to tell you that your English translations are trying to be nice, because they say rubbish when Paul says dog dung. What he is saying is that everything he once had, that he once would have credited as righteousness, that he once would have looked at and thought, oh, I'm so good, he now counts as a loss. He now counts it as rubbish. Literally, he counts it as dog excrement, because it is worth nothing but to be thrown out compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. These false teachers were saying, you want righteousness? Here's what you do to get righteousness. Paul is saying, forget righteousness for a moment and think about Christ. You need do nothing but trust in Christ to have him. And having Christ is worth so much more than mere righteousness than mere feeling okay about yourself, than mere feeling like you will be judged rightly. Christ is all and all and all. I remember one uh, older gentleman once telling me that he didn't understand why Christian churches focuses so much on Jesus. And he was a Christian, and, uh, and for various reasons, I'll tell you the story sometime if you ask me. I, I don't doubt that now, although it concerned me then. He said, I don't understand their obsession with Jesus. I think, you know, we're just supposed to worship God. You know, just God in general. I wish I had been so uh, versed in the scriptures and so thoughtful to say, well, what do you do with John fourteen six? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Really, John, the whole gospel, is an antidote to that kind of thinking. Because even Jesus there says, if you see me, you have seen the Father. The Father and I are one. You want God, you have to get me. There is no being in right relationship with God. There is no true worship of God. There is no true service of God, except that worship and service and relationship that comes in and through and by Jesus Christ. Jesus is the center So just for a moment, Paul says, maybe your goal is the wrong goal. Maybe righteousness is not the point. Because if righteousness was the end goal, I could conceive of a situation where you said, well, let's work for it. But he's saying, no, no, no. What the end goal is, is Christ. And Christ comes to us, not through our works to him, but through his works to us. Christ comes near to us when we were far from him. And so all we need to do is fall into his arms. All we need to do is have faith and trust in him. Unless you think that faith is yet another work to get to Jesus, consider this for a moment. I heard this illustration. I'll give you two illustrations I heard from a a preacher, Kevin DeYoung, at a conference I was at in the spring. He talks about uh, this. He said this was a northern illustration, so I don't quite understand it. But he said that in the winter, when his friends would want to get together and do some ice hockey, they would go to the lake or the pond as it was frozen, and, you know, they would kind of touch it. Eventually, they would take their hockey sticks and hit it a few times, and it might crack a little bit to see if it was going to break apart. And if it didn't do that, they might throw some rocks at it. And eventually, they felt confident enough to send the smallest guy to walk out in there and see if it worked. And then eventually they felt confident and they'd go and they would play hockey on the ice. 
and he made clear that there is a difference between the quality of the faith and the quality of the object of the faith. It's not the quality of the faith of the little scrawny guy who gets out on the ice that keeps him standing on it. It's the quality of the ice. It's the quality of the ice that keeps him out of the water. He says it is not the quality of the faith, but the quality of the object of the faith. And so with Christ, it is not the quality of our faith in him, but the quality in who our faith is in. So that it, not, it does not matter whether we are the most faithful people, but whether we're on the ice that is Christ Jesus, or whether we are on the ice that is our own flesh. And when we stand on the ice that is our own flesh, we will surely fall in. And when we stand on the ice that is Jesus Christ, we will surely stand. And so he says, it's not so important whether you lay on the bed that is Christ and have a good sleep or not, whether your your, uh, sleep that night is restless or not. It doesn't matter whether you're waking up three times at night to go let out the dog. But if the object of your faith is the bed of Christ that you lay in, then the quality of that bed triumphs over the quality of your faith in it. The object of the faith is the thing. So the problem isn't whether we have enough faith or not, but what our faith is in. Have you been trusting Your own flesh, your own hide, your own ability, your own reputation, your own person and work for righteousness, or are you trusting in Christ? Because if you have faith in Christ, you need not worry when you stand on that ice. But if you are trusting in yourself, I hope you know how to swim. Paul is saying that he's using a language of gain and loss, and it might call to mind Mark chapter 8, verse 36, where Christ says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his soul? Of course, the answer is it profits a man nothing to gain the whole world and lose his soul. So Paul says, Everything I once counted as gain, I now count as loss. For the sake of saving my soul in Jesus Christ. For the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. You've probably heard these two parables before, the parable of the treasure hidden in a field or the pearl of great price. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So it is with Christ, that when we look upon Christ, he is as a treasure hidden in a field. He is as a pearl of great price, such that there is no proper response but to forget about everything else, to lose everything else, to sell everything else, to to not worry or trust in anything else, but to come to him and receive him. And when we receive Christ through faith, we also receive all. All other spiritual rewards. Look in verses 9 through 11. Paul says, he had said that in order that he may gain Christ and be found in him, 
Then he says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul walks us through here. I have received Christ, so I get everything else included. You want righteousness? Forget about righteousness. I want Christ. He'll give me righteousness. Righteousness is like a fringe benefit to being in union with Christ. Justification, being made right with God and receiving the righteousness of God through the work of Jesus Christ is just a fringe benefit to knowing Christ. Becoming like him, being sanctified, becoming holy is just a fringe benefit to knowing Christ. Exaltation, the resurrection from the dead, the glorification we all will receive in Christ is just a fringe benefit of knowing Christ. You want heavenly rewards? Have them. Earn them however you want, but you will find yourself utterly lacking on that day because the only way you can get those rewards is through the person of Jesus Christ. When he becomes your goal, everything changes. When you own that piece of stock, your investments utterly change. Jesus Christ, knowing him, that'll get you everything else. You want a righteousness? Don't get the one that comes from the law. Get the one from God that you can only get from faith in Christ. You want to become like Jesus? It says in verse 10, he wants to know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You want that? You have to have faith in Christ. You want, the, you want to attain the resurrection from the dead? You want to be exalted? You want to be glorified? Don't seek to exalt yourself. Don't seek to glorify yourself. Have faith in Christ. Everything you could come up with as a good goal, a good end and of itself, is rubbish compared to knowing Christ. And every way you could get those things is rubbish compared to knowing Christ. At the end of the day, we all have to stand before Christ. And do we want to say, we wanted righteousness, so we worked for it. We wanted to be sanctified, so we tried harder. We wanted to be exalted, so we pushed everyone else down. Or do we want to say simply that we have faith in Christ? This morning, I would invite you, if you do not have faith in Christ, to turn from your life of sin, as we all have to do, and to give your faith to him, to trust him, to trust his death for your sin in your place, to trust his resurrection from the dead. If you do know Christ, I want you to be encouraged not to make the fringe benefits of knowing Christ your goal, but to make knowing Christ your goal. And I would encourage you not to use any human means to attain them, but to simply have faith in Christ. You want to be more like him? Don't just try harder. Love him more. Let's pray.